the passage we are looking at today has something to tell us about leaving the old behind, right? Not to be more accurate, leaving the old age behind or the old era behind as we are participants and members of a new age or a new era. So if you are able to, can, if you can rise up, we'll read from Galatians chapter 4, verse 1 to 11. The verses will be up on screen. If you are able to, please, uh, please rise up at your place. Galatians chapter 4, verse 1 to 11. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I have labored over you in vain. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray, Lord, that as we reflect on Paul's message to the churches in Galatia, especially on this occasion of the new year, that we can remind ourselves that we are all uh, people who have been brought into a new year, a new year of grace and favor from God because of the work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we have left the old year of uh, enslavement and, 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 uh, and fear and patterns and practices that did not help us behind. And we pray, O Lord, that we will resist the temptation to fall back into those old ways of living by your grace and through the work of your spirit. So we pray, O Lord, that you'll open our hearts and minds as we listen to your word today. In the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we ask. Amen. May be seated. You know, we all know that the new year is, is kind of a means by which we draw some hope because, you know, the year has passed and so we don't want to repeat what are our points of uh, shortcomings or failures in the old year. That's why we have this concept of New Year's resolutions, right? A New Year's resolution is a movement away from something we did in the old year which we did not like or which was not beneficial. But as any of us can attest, New Year's resolutions, the majority of them fail. It is, uh, someone actually did a study on this, and they say like 8% of people actually successfully complete their New Year's resolution or hold on to it. So that's not a very um, encouraging number. In fact, uh, there's a social network called Strava, which uh, I don't know if some of you may use, it's a social network for athletes and people who are fitness oriented. And obviously, a lot of New Year's resolutions fall into the category of fitness. And what Strava has, because they actually track, right? You use the app 
to track your progress. What they have estimated is that there's actually a single date in the calendar at which point if you pass that date, you have a higher chance of completing your New Year's resolution. You want to guess what that date is? First Feb? It's a good guess. January 12th. So if you start your resolution on January 1st, if you are still maintaining it by January 12th, you have a very high chance that you will be successful. But most, the majority of people actually fail their New Year's resolution by January 12th. So you can be like me and just start on January 13th. And that way, you have already passed the point of failure. So there's a temptation for all of us to kind of lapse into the habits of the old year. The ease with which we can do that is the reason why we fail to keep our New Year's resolutions. And so this part of Galatians, or the, past, or the epistle of Galatians, written to the churches in the region of Galatia. And there were new believers, mostly Gentiles, but they were being influenced by false teachers who had come from Jewish backgrounds, who told them that you have to add some features of Judaism, the Jewish religion at that time, such as circumcision and, and, and feast ob observance and Sabbath observance, as being necessary for keeping the Christian faith. In addition, to the grace of being justified in Jesus Christ through his work on the cross. And so the false teachers have made a lot of inroads or, or have had a lot of impact in this community. And so therefore, Paul is very urgently communicating to them, warning them of the great mistake they're about to make in actually abandoning the true Christian faith by mixing it with the false teachings of these intruders. And so you may ask, what's the connection of this passage with the New Year? Like I said, the connection is very tenuous when you think about it that way. But if you read the passage, you read the multiple indications of time. It talks about a time that was past and a time that is now. Specifically, Paul says that those who are in Christ belong to a new age, a new year. And those before Christ and those who still do not believe in Christ belong to an old age. So those who belong to the new age, when tempted to fall back into the patterns and practices of the old age, are like those of us whose resolutions melt away in the face of temptation. Thereby, we lose the advantages of the new age and fall back into the weaknesses and disadvantages of the old age. Now you will notice that verse one of Galatians chapter four starts with, I mean. So he's actually explaining something that has come before, and that passage is Galatians chapter three, verse 23 to 29. It says that now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So what Paul is saying here is that the law of Moses 
only served to point those who followed it, which were the Jewish people, to its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. It did not actually have any spiritual benefit apart from putting, enabling them to put their faith and trust in God and pointing them towards Christ. But in fact, when they went away from its original purpose and started treating it as its own thing, it actually had negative impact. See, the law was a teacher. It became a barrier that separated those people from true freedom, which is an intimate relationship with God, to be called sons and daughters of God. And so Paul is saying is that true freedom means moving away from the categories that defined us and gave us worth before Christ Jesus came. So the categories of the old age, which is race, Jew or Greek, economic status or slavery and freedom, gender, male and female, all the things that gave identity and worth to a person in the old age have gone away because those who are in Christ have equal access and equal favor from God through Christ. And ultimately, those who are of faith in Christ, those who belong to this new age, have inherited Abraham's promise. And what is Abraham's promise? We read that earlier on in Galatians chapter 3, verse 7 to 9. It says that, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So what is the promise given to Abraham? That God will justify his sons and daughters by faith. That means justification through faith, the process by which we are made right with God, not based on our own merit, for as we know that would be impossible, but through God's initiative in Christ Jesus. For those who put their faith in Christ and his saving work on the cross, to be able to be called righteous by God. That is called justification. And that is the promise that was given to Abraham, which is the inheritance of all those who believe in Christ Jesus. Therefore, Paul says, if you are Christ and you're Abraham's offspring, you are the inheritors of the promise given to Abraham. So then Paul asks in chapter four, then why do you want to fall back into the old age and break your resolution, so to speak, to live as people of faith, to live as people of promise, instead going back into the old ways where that promise was not real in your life. And chapter four is an explanation of this principle, but given in the context of the whole world, whether that's Jew or Gentile, and especially given in the context of Christians who can look back to their life before Christ especially if you were a Gentile, you can look back to your old pagan religion and practices and look to your current privileges in Christ. So chapter four only makes sense if you are a Christian. It doesn't make sense for you know, any random person in the world. And what Paul is trying to point out to them is three specific things in the passage that we read in chapter four, which is that first he talks about our bondage or our enslavement in the old age. And then he talks about our freedom in the new age. And then lastly, there's an appeal to not throw away our freedom for bondage. So when we look at verse one to three, 
Our bondage in the old age is what Paul is talking about. It says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So here Paul is, is um, creating an analogy. He's comparing the lack of freedom that we had in the old age with the lack of freedom of a child who is, you know, who belongs to a family of great wealth and who is in line to inherit that great wealth, but actually cannot spend or control any of that wealth until he's an adult. Okay? So that is the analogy and the precise legal background of this analogy in the Roman world. We actually cannot determine it. For example, you know, there is no, uh, unlike uh, today, in the Roman world, when a child became an adult, you would inherit your wealth, even if your father was alive. But here we see that, you know, the analogy says that you are under guardians and managers until a date set by his father. So there's, there isn't a precise background here, but that was not Paul's point. Paul's point is to highlight the lack of freedom that a child has until he becomes an adult. Even if the child thinks, I am the owner of all of this property, the fact that you cannot spend it, you cannot control it, without permission from someone else who are these guardians and managers, means that you're almost like a slave. It's no different from a slave. Because a slave also can only uh, do what he gets permission for. So also a child. And so for the Galatian Christians, many of whom came from pagan backgrounds and not Jewish backgrounds, this rang true with regards to their spiritual and religious past. They may have felt, like we know many of our friends and family who are not of the faith but who belong to some other religion, they would have felt that they were God-fearing and they wanted to attain God's favor. But they always had to depend on someone else. Either they go to priests or they do rituals, and they are never satisfied or confident that they were truly God-fearing or had God's favor. In a sense, they were infants, children, with no legal rights to approach God on their own, but always had to depend on someone else, whether that is a priest or, in this example, like a guardian and manager. In that sense, like we said, how are they different to slaves? who also didn't have any legal rights and could not make decisions on their own and did not own anything. For all practical purposes, they were the same. But in verse three, Paul further elaborates who we were in bondage to in our past. So chapter four, verse three says, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So he's saying it's not just you had a lack of freedom, but you're also enslaved to something. And he calls it the elementary principles of the world. Now we know, what is the first level of schooling? Don't say preschool, actual school. We call it elementary school, right? I don't know if they still call it that. Maybe they call it something else. But elementary school is where you learn ABCs. You learn the alphabet. So in a sense, you know, the word elementary means things like the law. So in the New Testament, the law is seen as a teacher. 
It, it is the alphabet that should give you the ability to understand the grace of God in Christ. So also in Hebrews, we see, you know, Paul says you are still children, still subsiding of milk. You have not moved on from the elementary teachings of the faith. So the building blocks. But it's not what is mentioned here. What we see here is that you're enslaved to elementary principles of the world. What are elementary principles of the world? In ancient Greece, the universe was consisted of certain fundamental elements. Does anyone know what they are? Still say the same thing, right? Three of them are the name of a band. So it's like earth, air, and water. So earth, wind, and water. And the last one is like fire. So you had four elements, earth, air, fire, and water. Basically what Paul is saying is that the focus, the enslavement was to the material things of the world. The material things you find in this world which are consisted of the elementary building blocks of the world, earth, wind, fire, water, is what we were enslaved to. We are enslaved to the chasing of things that were found in this world. We look to our acceptance our identity by finding our worth in these things. So we see in verse 8 and 9 of chapter 4, it says, Formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. So in many cultures, when they have multiple gods, what are they gods of? Right? They're all gods of something. One is a god of wealth. Another is a god of fertility. Another is a god of knowledge and learning. So Paul says you chased these things so much that you created gods that by very nature they are not gods. They are just things that you want. Wealth, success, knowledge. Unlike the true God who is the creator and ruler of all the universe. People worship what they value. And so they enslave themselves to the material elements of the world and they found a way to worship those things and define their lives by the success or failure in attaining those things, thereby moving away from the true God. And so that's why Paul says in verse 9, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? In of themselves, they have no value and no worth to define who you are as a person and especially to define your relationship to God. If anything, they just move you away from entering into a true relationship with God. And you have to notice that this would be true of both Jew and Gentile. Because where the Gentiles were preoccupied with wealth and, and, and knowledge and so on, what were the Jews preoccupied with at that time? They were preoccupied with circumcision. And they were preoccupied with food what you can eat, what you cannot eat. They're preoccupied with festivals on the calendar. These are all part of the material elements of this world, the physical. So both Jew and Gentile alike, enslaved to the material elements of this world. And they both define themselves in the old age by their enslavement, not to the things of God, but to the things of this world. And so Paul says, that is your bondage. 
in the old age. They never, you were enslaved to these things, but they never satisfied you. They never gave you any sense of freedom. Instead, all you kept doing was trying to find satisfaction, doing more and more and more, whether that be rituals, or whether that be chasing after more and more things or different things, but you never actually found contentment and you especially did not find favor with God. And so he says, if you contrast that with the new age, which is what we read in Galatians chapter four, verse four to seven, it says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So it says in the fullness of time, when the fullness of time had come, the exact measure of time under the initiative of God. And there are many theories why Jesus Christ came at a particular moment in time. Like we have all read the, uh, you know, the concept that it's because you know, there was the Roman Empire and, and there was peace of a certain kind throughout the whole world. There were roads, there was a common language, which was Greek. And all of these things are put forward as an explanation for why Christ came at that particular point. And that's all true in a sense. But ultimately, it is the initiative and secret will of God who is the creator of time, and God is not bound by time. He's not bound by history where he's a participant in history. He's not impacted by time. Rather, he controls and changes history as he pleases to accomplish his purposes. So when the fullness of time, it's talking about the will of God, that this is the right moment. Because in the beginning, there is God. Even before time was created, God was. So in Genesis chapter one, God creates time. He says the sun and the moon and the stars in the, in the skies are for signs and seasons and days and years. Then what happens? In Genesis, by Genesis chapter three, after the fall, time becomes a curse. It becomes a mars, marker of the curse. The curse is that you shall toil all the days of your life and then you shall return to the dust. So God created time and time became a curse for us, but God is not impacted by time. He does not change according to time. He is in control of all time. Whereas human beings, because we are so dependent on time, we are careful to measure it and, 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 and you know, order our lives around time. We are afraid that we don't have enough time. We do things because we fear that we have to make an impact before time runs out. You know, the history of timekeeping is very fascinating. From, from the beginning of human history, people are fascinated with time. You know, in the beginning they just depended on, on sun and the moon and the stars to count days and, and years and so on. Then they invented what we know as like sundials, right, where they had this very rudimentary timekeeping devices that when the sand runs out, oh, it's sunset and so on. And then we have advanced, you know, we have, we invented watches and time, uh, timekeeping devices. So today, if you uh, buy like a mechanical watch or, or what's sometimes called an automatic watch, which depends on you either winding 
you know, a, a gear in the watch to make it run, or it depends on the movement of your wrist, those watches are very accurate. So if you buy like a Rolex, a Rolex is probably the most accurate movement, as they call it. A Rolex loses, or is said to lose, or gain, lose or gain, two seconds per day. So that's the accuracy, which is a very stunning achievement because it is actually depending on motors and gears that are powered by either your hand or by the movement of your wrist. So two seconds a day. Most of us, uh, the, th the clocks in our, in our homes run on quartz movements. Now quartz is, a, is an element that if you excite it with electric power, that's why you have to keep changing batteries in your clocks, it can vibrate at a frequency which you can then use to measure time. Now a quartz movement on average loses 15 seconds or gains 15 seconds a month. So it's very accurate, but it still loses or gains 15 seconds. So if you had a clock in your house and you did not do anything to it and the battery didn't run out, I can prophesy that in two years, you will be five minutes late to church. Or you could be early by five minutes, but let's be realistic, you're probably going to be late. So that's a, that's a quartz movement. Now if you depended on quartz to keep time, you would be in a lot of trouble because it's not accurate. So scientists have an atomic, they invented an atomic clock. And an atomic clock, you excite an atom in the clocks that we have today. It's an element called cesium. That if you excite it, the electron in that atom moves from energy level, let's say zero, to energy level one and then back and forth it does that. The movement between zero and one and back, movement between zero and one is a second. Moves back, another second and so on. That's an atomic clock. The atomic clock, even though you might not have heard of it, controls everything in the modern world. Electricity generation, your cell phones, GPS. The atomic clock, the ones that we have today, is accurate to a billionth of a second. That means in a billion years, it will either gain or lose one second. And you might think, oh, well, that's very accurate. What if it was a million years? What if you gained or lost one second in a million years? Your GPS, which depends on accurate timekeeping to determine where you are, because it's depending on locating you with the help of satellites, so your GPS is probably very accurate, right? People follow it into like lakes and ditches because they trust the GPS so much. The GPS that you have in your car or your phone, if the atomic clock was only accurate to a millionth of a second, which means in a million years it loses a second, your GPS would tell you that you are five to eight kilometers away from where you actually are. That is how advanced we have got in the measurement of time and how accurate it is that it can control so many aspects of our daily life. But even then, you cannot change time. You can only measure time. But God is above time. He unrolls time and history as like a sheet of paper on a table, and he says, this is the exact movement at which Jesus Christ will come into the world. That is what is meant 
by the fullness of time. And in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, verse four, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. He sent forth his son. For someone to be sent, he already has to exist. So when you say Jesus Christ was sent by God, it means that he was pre-existent, he was glorious. He was there before the beginning of time because he, he is God. He sent forth his son. But then it says, he sent his son to be born of woman. What does that mean? In Job chapter 14, verse one, same expression. Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. So God says he sent his son into time. The timeless God, the eternal God, enters into time. We do not know how the humanity of Jesus functions with relation to time. That's why we call it a hypostatic union because we can't differentiate what aspects of his deity is divided from what aspects of his humanity. But the Bible says that he did not take any shortcuts to the experience of humanity when it came to time. He was a baby, he grew up normally, he obeyed his parents, he lived under their command and obedience. He felt hunger in the morning and at noon and at evening. He had to sleep at night to rest his body. It says he went into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and he felt every second of that time period impacting his body, having to stay alert to ward off all the dangers of the wilderness. He lived 33 years under the bombardment of the impact of time and all the temptations that come with being in a world that is bound by time and the human experience, yet he did not succumb to it because he was without sin. But he knows how it feels to be bound in this world under time. That's why in Hebrews chapter four, verse 14, it says, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So Jesus Christ willingly came into the world and put himself under the constraint of time. And then it says he was born under the law. It means he was born a Jew. That means he was circumcised on the eighth day. That means he read the scriptures and grew in knowledge. That means he attended the synagogue. But most of all, it says he fulfilled all the demands of the law. In that sense, Jesus Christ not only knows what it means to be in time, he knows what only it means to feel like we do in our humanity, but he also knows what it means to be under the guardianship of the law. He willingly submitted to the requirements of the law, although he did not have to because he is God, he is the writer of the law, and he had every advantage that comes from that, and yet he laid it aside. His only instinct was to obey his father freely, but he laid aside all those advantages to put himself under the law, under the guardianship of the law. Why? Because as a commentator says, it says he entered into the prison house where his people were held in bondage so that he could set them free. He entered into the bondage, you could say, of the law so that he could fulfill it and break the enslavement that it had on all people. He himself had no need of a guardian or a steward, but he put himself under that so that he could bring his people to the point where we no longer need 
a guardian or a steward when it comes to approaching God. That's why in verse 5 of chapter 4 it says, He came to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. God enters time. He put himself under the guardianship of the law and then he perfectly abides by all the things in the law and yet he who was without sin died on the cross so that we might be redeemed from the bondage of the law and of every other bondage of this world. So his perfect death after his perfect life as our substitute, he exchanges what he had and gives it to us. He paid the price to redeem us from bondage so that the Son of God could make you and me sons of God today so that we might receive our full right as sons and daughters of God. That's what adoption means. So that we are no longer infants but we have entered into our inheritance and we are now free because we have received the promise which is the justification of faith that was promised to Abraham. Therefore we are free to approach God. We are free to define our identity not as slaves of this world, but as children of God. We are no longer bound by the chasing winds of time. And because of that, we were fearful of time, but we are free to live our lives because we have the promise of an eternity with God as sons and daughters. And more than that, in verse six and seven of chapter four, it says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You know, one of the great privileges of sonship is that just as God sent the pre-existent son who is Jesus Christ into the world to redeem us from under the law and give us adoption as sons, he also sends the pre-existent spirit, the third person of the Trinity, into our hearts so that we can relate to God in the intimacy that is not natural to human beings, but is natural within the perfect relationship of the Godhead. The Spirit enables us to call God Abba, which is not an actual word, right? It's, it's, uh, it is the phonetic, um, what is it? It is the, the wording comes from the sound a child makes when calling out to his or her father. It's a cry of the heart that is intimate, which is not possible with the detachment of our old religion, where we were still separate from God, where we were enslaved to the things of this world. But because the Spirit lives within us, we now know what it means to be in an intimate relationship with God. Truly sons and daughters, no longer slaves. The emotional reaction to that knowledge that God truly is your father, enables us to call him Abba Father. You know, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Abba Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. The intimacy, that vulnerability, that enables Jesus to go to his father and make that appeal. And yet, he says, not your will, but not my will, but yours. And the will of the Father was for him to drink fully of that cup. For that request to not be answered. So that today you and I, with the same freedom that he had, can go to God and call him Abba Father. 
the conviction of knowing that we are sons and daughters of God. That is the freedom that we have in the new age. And so then Paul says, if you have this freedom, why do you want to throw it away? For we read in verse 8 to 11, it says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that were by nature not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. See, Paul's appeal comes out of his amazement. He says, you know how you lived in your old days, the bondage where you lived in fear of so-called evil spirits, when your religion was just marking dates on the calendar. You are fearful that missing one ritual would lead to punishment. When you were so afraid of the passing of time that all you did was chase after wealth and material blessings to leave behind a legacy, as you call it. When you were afraid to approach God and could do that only through priests and other rituals, you know how that feels. You know the anxieties and the worries that were in your heart in the old age. You know how it feels to be slaves to all those things that those identities did not satisfy you. Now you are no longer slaves but sons and daughters of God. So then how can you listen to those who would come and say, put aside this freedom and once again enslave yourself to the elements of this world where you never found security or peace. And so you see the Galatians probably already started following the Jewish calendar of feasts and rituals. That's why he says you observe days and months and seasons and years. Like they started doing all these things and, and so Paul is asking, didn't Christ fulfill the law so that you could be free from the law? So that your acceptance with God is not based on your conformance to the law or your performance, but the perfect intimacy that is the gift of justification by faith in Christ due to the grace of God. And instead you're putting up barriers to God that Christ himself abolished. And today, it's easy to think that this is talking about legalism, right? Legalism is religious practice that people feel will increase their favor with God. And in this context, it certainly is true, but even in a culture where religion is not so prominent, in the world that we live today, we can still be enslaved to the elementary principles of this world of finding self-worth and identity apart from God, finding security apart from God, whether that is in wealth or career or relationship, and the fear of time. The young people call it FOMO, fear of missing out. Isn't that the root of many of our anxieties and worries? The reason why we drift away from God, because we have once again become enamored and enslaved by the elementary, worthless principles of this world. So if there's anything we can do this new year, it is the op it's to take the opportunity that we have to remind ourselves and each other the great privilege we have in being people of the new age in Christ, where we are no longer we no longer slaves, but we are sons and daughters of God. We are free in God to call him Abba Father, to, to be defined not by the categories of this world, but by our relationship with Christ, the testimony of the indwelling spirit, 
to bring our every need and fear into his presence and to rest assured that he will take care of us, that he is always faithful, that he is not bound by time. And so our scope of time should not be the 70 to 80 years that is the part and parcel of this world, but rather the eternity that we have in the presence of God. Let us not lapse back into the patterns and practices of the old age where we chased after every wind and spirit, but it did not satisfy us, but just left us defeated, left us anxious, left us tired, left us as slaves, but let us continue to hold on to the perfect freedom that comes from being in Christ and the ability to be called sons and daughters of God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word that is practical and impactful no matter when in history or time we find ourselves because the lessons that it contains are lessons that are not just, um, not just confined to the context in which it was written, but is fundamental to our human experience. We recognize a lot that our tendency is to fall back into defining ourselves and chasing after the things of this world and letting that enslave us, whether that be in our own self-identity or whether that be in our religious um, practices and our perception of you as God. Instead of Lord, may we once again remind ourselves of the perfect freedom that we have as sons and daughters of God, as inheritors of the promise to Abraham because your son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he entered into this world he knows what it means to live under the constraints of time. He knows what it means to live under the guardianship of the law. And he fulfilled all of that perfectly so that today we do not have to be enslaved to those things. Instead, we are able, as he's able, to approach you in intimacy and, and with the privilege of knowing that we can call you as Abba Father. May we put all our worries, our anxieties at your throne of grace. May we be able or not to define ourselves in our identity as Christians, as sons and daughters of Christ, as we go out into this world. May our testimony be empowered by the indwelling spirit so that the whole world can know a lot that there is an eternity that is possible in the presence of the Holy God, not because of our own merit, but because of the grace and favor of our God in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. May that be our resolution, our desire and our inclination as we enter into this new year, whether that be in the school uh, environment or in our workplace or in the home, that we are able to truly say that we are no longer slaves, but that we are free because we are sons and daughters of a living God. May your name alone be glorified. In the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we ask. Amen. <laughs>